Welcome to the Green Data Center Podcast. This episode is for January 2024. This time, in addition to reviewing the news and what's been happening across the data center industry and the sustainability and how they intersect, we'll also take a deeper dive into Meta. Once again, thank you for everyone that has been on board supporting this podcast, listening, giving your likes, your comments, your mentions. It helps a lot. It helps immensely. In reviewing all of the past episodes and performance, those comments and likes mean a lot and they go a long way, more than I think anyone had ever realized really. So keep them coming. Thank you very much. Where to start? There has been a lot of developments, of course, all of these big players and small players launching companies doing mergers in the billions of dollars. Of course, those are the big headlines that we always see as everyone is chasing down capacity in order to support AI. Of course, those two letters mean a lot whenever attached to anything these days. And of course, a lot of it might be clickbait, but there is a lot of traction being gained all throughout the industry for investment as well as what it means for the data center and how it can be developed. So sustainability being a big part of that, it's part of every article typically. Now, the one company I'd like to start with is Powerhouse Data Centers, and they're expanding into Reno, Nevada. They've got a 900,000 square foot campus. They've got preliminarily designed, and they're going to basically start developing that right away. Powerhouse has been going at it for a little bit, and they brought on more and more expertise, and not just in the data center industry, but also in sustainability. And what does that mean? How do they make that happen? And of course, their main CEO, uh, Doug Fleet, you know, CEO of the American Realty, Arup, and Powerhouse, he's more of a real estate gentleman, right? So the idea is that he's bringing all of his expertise in order to help develop for all these hyperscalers, and he's brought on these team members that are really, really good. So because they know the industry and what the the hyperscalers and not even what their their end customers might want or what they might need, they really know the industry thoroughly for the data center development and the sustainability aspects. So they're really good at that because they've been doing it for a few years now. And Powerhouse launching into Reno, Nevada with this, this campus is going to be a really good push for the hyperscalers. And just adding all of that in that Reno market is going to be really attractive because the costs and the land there can be really kept low for those hyperscale clients or customers of theirs. Now, whenever they were looking at this property, it was apparent that there's a lot of renewable energy pieces that go to support this. But the really nice thing is if you start reading about this in Reno, it's really reliable. And if you think about Nevada and what they've got, they can really talk about solar and wind as being part of that reliable grid expansion. And let me just diverge on on that a little bit. So a lot of times whenever you have that renewable power, it's not necessarily reliable. So a lot of the people that are in the high power, high voltage sector, the utilities, they might have all these renewable power, but they realize that they need to develop right along with it a traditional gas or other type of power plant right along with it in order to make sure that they have that reliable power. And those gas plants and such, they're not necessarily fired on as quickly, 
but they need to make up for any losses or any sags across all of those renewables. Now, Reno, however, through studies and careful considerations, has been able to essentially juggle what the power supply has been in order to avoid developing more of those gas plants and have that reliable, renewable energy grid for data centers, among other customers. Now, if you also read into why Reno, it also works out really well with developing to support the entire West Coast market. Reno itself is a growing data center market. It might not be as as big as Dallas, for instance, or a few of the others, especially not Northern Virginia, but it is up and coming because of that cheaper power. And because they've got that power capacity, that starts to be one of the major factors whenever you're looking to suddenly expand. The other one that Powerhouse has been working on has been the expansion in Virginia. So Spotsylvania County is where they're landing, and it's 800 megawatts. So that's an excellent expansion. And the site is going to appeal to those, again, those hyperscale users that are looking for well-located, in other words, Northern Virginia, a development with easy access to power and fiber connectivity. And that's what Spotsylvania is providing. Now, you'd be right in saying that, well, Spotsylvania is not exactly Ashburn. No, it's not, but it's good enough, especially with the connectivity and closeness to a lot of those peering sites that are in Ashburn and those that latency, that low latency to all of those campuses that are in Ashburn is really what's being looked at here as this is basically a hub that's going to be outside of the, the data center hub of Ashburn. Now, the Spotsylvania site for Powerhouse, there's a few other features that go along with that. If you follow the power and the availability of power in the market in Northern Virginia, you realize that there's a lot that, that's not going to be coming online for, say, a couple years as far as flowing uh, and getting power for all these other facilities across uh, Ashburn, especially. So this is going to be a real speed to market type of move, and it means that the data center industry is just keeping it, it just keeps marching south across northern Virginia into Richmond. And of course, there is that crescent that crescent continues on to Virginia Beach, where, of course, there's uh, several fiber landings that are at Virginia Beach that people are starting to, to notice and starting to appreciate as another data center hub that might start growing as well. Now, that power is supplemented by a lot of the investments that Virginia, not just the state, but the utilities that are in Virginia, have invested a lot in the renewable energies and have all of these different uh, like partnerships, especially with some of those hyperscalers, in order to make those renewable energy programs get off the ground and get running. So whenever the, that power or these data centers are completed, suddenly they will be backed by a lot of renewable resources. And it might not be 100% in some of these locations, of course, but the idea is if they can go with 20, 30, 40% of their total energy from renewables, that's the first start. And as more of these renewable projects come online, suddenly they're crossing the 50% mark and they're on their way marching to be 100% as far as the total use of renewables for that particular site. Now, of course, it's it's not direct, it's indirect, but the idea is if you can offset all of your energy use by having renewable energy use, and that renewable energy might be going to other places, say your residential or other industries, 
that is acceptable, especially when you're trying to run a data center 24-7 and you're looking for ways to just provide power on the grid. This is one of those ways where you can do those offsets on the renewable energy side in order to compensate for your energy use. Let's look at what AWS has been investing, and let's start with Japan. And they've been doing about a billion dollars a year through the years. And a lot of this lately has to do with their AI offering, and they've titled it Bedrock, and they rolled that out in October of 2023. And it looks like they're maybe doubling down with, instead of doing a billion dollars a year, they might be doing about $2 billion a year going forward for the next three, four, five years. And that's not just on the infrastructure side, but it's also on the sustainability side. Tokyo and Japan, they've had a lot of changes where they're looking to gradually get better and better on the sustainability front and the energy use front uh, with renewables. Now, they're not as aggressive as Singapore, for example, but they do have their own sustainability measures. And it's not just around the construction side and getting something built for more data centers that AWS is likely to deploy very soon. It's also on the energy use side. So you have to prove that you're continually doing well, that you're using renewables or that you're backing renewable projects. Now the AWS, they're they're going at it with a teamwork kind of approach. So as they're investing every year, they're also getting the municipalities and the the local jurisdictions, all of the utilities to also invest with them in all these infrastructure upgrades so that they know that they can back it and have everything end-to-end -end works out, uh, not just for AWS, of course, but overall on the sustainability front. So that's been a, a really innovative thing to see across Japan and just to read a, a cr like what they're doing on these projects. It's not necessarily unique, but it is unique in how they're doing this with a very populated area. That's a lot of red tape, a lot of bureaucracy, um, no offense, but the, the amount that it takes in order to get a project done, there's a reason why like the amount of investments in Japan or these, like these Japanese projects don't necessarily yield the same number of megawatts that you're looking at in other, other markets. And it's nothing against that. It's just how much do you have to invest in order to get the sort of the same thing done and because of that you are throwing on all these sustainability aspects but the efficiency that can be done with that and how it's coordinated is just fascinating that it can happen that way and because that can be done in japan in that way and yeah sure it's a little bit more expensive but that proves that it can be done in essentially any market whether it's super developed like tokyo is or whether it's just halfway on the development or up and coming so it can be done anywhere and everywhere it might just take a little bit more effort in order to do it as streamlined as Japan is doing it today. The other big drop that Amazon has also done, or AWS, I should say, is the investment of about $10 billion in the state of Mississippi. It's across two different campuses. It's about 1,700 acres. And 1,700 acres at over 600 acres per square mile. It's about three square miles that they're investing in or maybe a little bit under now what i was looking for is what the renewables or what the energy uh, plan was going to be that accompanies this so far it's not been revealed 
but the state itself is investing about $44 million in the project. And it's mostly for the workforce training in order to get people up to speed, uh, make sure that they have all the STEM needs, uh, you know, the backgrounds, uh, so that they have the people that can support the facility as well as the construction programs that go through it. And then there's another $215 million for the local public infrastructure for all the infrastructure needs as these data centers are being built and all the shipping, construction, all that the state is going to be supporting and helping out with. So overall, it looks like a, a pretty good deal on both sides. I mean, the state is investing a lot for their infrastructure to be redone. And this is the biggest investment that the state has had. So they're really reinvesting in themselves and revamping a lot of what they're looking at. So kudos to both sides on getting this done. What I have not seen is the sustainability plans, but knowing Amazon and AWS, they probably have one. We're just going to be paying attention to that as $10 billion for the, such a huge data center campus expansions. That's going to be a lot of infrastructure that's going to be built. And I'm very curious on what that's going to be supported by as far as those renewable projects. Moving right along, there have been a bunch of other billion dollars here, billion dollars there, right? Um, there's one that I'll mention, WebWorks in India, if you don't know them. They're essentially a colo provider that they have hyperscale facilities across India at uh, several different locations. And they have 2.4 billion. But if you look at the facilities and such, they're just sort of throwing on some solar on the roof and some of these other features. So speaking of following up and seeing what really takes place or what's really part of the design is going to be critical in some of these places. And I'd encourage you to also follow along um, and research that and let me know if there's anything that you can add, especially on some of these facilities that seem to be just sort of, again, stapling on some solar panels on a roof just to make it look like it's a greener data center. Really interested to know whether it is or is not and how they're doing it, especially with the heat reuse as well. So more on that as well as some other investments, not just in the data center side, but on the sustainability and energy side as well. Let's turn our attention to Meta and what they've been doing with their data centers. So Meta, if you know them formerly as Facebook or whatever, but they've been doing a lot of data center investment and they're over $18 billion now. And it looks like they're going to be investing another 800 million in a facility that's going to be in Indiana, in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And this comes with a lot of uh, incentives and other measures. Now. It's been a little bit since they've launched some data centers, and they do so after a long sort of uh, more drawn out sort of period. Now, Meta as a data center company, they've launched o Open Compute Project, which has been great. We can follow a lot of what they're expecting to do there. But their investments have been not necessarily as uh, upfront or as aggressive as a lot of the other hyperscale companies. Now, each one of these locations that they are looking to develop is considered about $800 million facility. So they'll launch this and they, you know, in addition to the one that's in Indiana, uh, in years past or recent years past, they've had one in Texas and Missouri and Idaho. And those three along with this new one you know at that they're looking at at eight at 800 million 
dollars each, that's going to bring the total up to about $3.2 billion that they're investing over the last, well, not a couple years, but say about three years or so. Now, the idea is that the projects are going to be more, of course, AI focused. And by AI, I also mean metaverse. That's what they used to say a couple years ago is metaverse focused. But really, they can just pivot quite really easily to support the AI infrastructure that suddenly everybody's after. What is nice about the metadata centers is they chase down lead certification, going for lead gold. And in a lot of these places, it starts to really look like manipulate any of the site that they need to. They're not in data center major markets, right? So like the one in Texas is in Temple, Texas. It's not in Dallas, right? Uh, the one in Missouri is in Kansas City, you know, not known as a primary, uh, you know, location for data centers. And Idaho, uh, can't mention where in Idaho, Kuna, Idaho, like I had to look that up on a map to see where that was. But that's the sites that they're going for is outside of the major markets because that's what they're using. They're relying on everybody else just for the backbone and everything. But they're not necessarily worried about being a latency heavy data center site for these major sites that they are owning and operating themselves. Instead, they're going to be moving into other data centers as a, a co-location data center or providing somebody else is providing those services for those that really have that low latency needs. What's interesting to see on the site in Indiana is it does not have the typical design of the years past where we saw this H design where each leg of the H was the main building and then you had that admin space in between. Instead, the, this new design looks like they started from scratch and they are going to launch into a more modular sort of building components. And I think this is because they hired a lot of executives over the last couple of years and uh, engineers that have done different data center designs at different hyperscalers and are looking to streamline. In other words, streamline around the AI or the metaverse and those designs as opposed to doing whatever you wanted in order to, to make things happen. Um, and because of that, they're modularizing the construction and the design. And that's likely going to be a much cheaper data center than they've had in the past. Meta, I think, was known across the industry as having more expensive data centers that they owned and operated. Um, hence, that's why they would oftentimes co-locate in a lot of other data centers. But this looks to be much more efficient on the design and the construction in order to cut costs and have a more efficient data center overall. Now this new design is likely to match up with the previous needs for this new AI that they've been researching. And if you followed what they've been doing with their AI research supercluster, they've been doing a lot with having initially about 6,000 GPUs and they upped that to about 16,000 GPUs um, over the course of a year. But the, the intent was, what do we need for power, space, and cooling in order to support that? Now, they did that super cluster over InfiniBand, and I believe these data centers are going to be InfiniBand-based also, which has a certain uh, distance relationship that they need to keep within. So physically, they need to keep the data centers clustered around like a network core. Now, for this, they, they probably figured out from that research supercomputer what they could do and then start to modularize that in order to figure out what they needed to do. 
Now, the physical infrastructure is likely to be centered around supporting the NVIDIA GPUs. At the research supercluster, I think that they were looking at the A100s or H100s, um, but the intent is likely to be focused around how many can they pack in a certain quadrant or a certain capacity in order to make this happen. And then they'll build up the storage and everything else around that compute. And that includes the powers, the, the cooling that goes along with that. And then look at that in a modularized data center that they can go ahead and deploy at this Indiana site. Now, part of that infrastructure in getting better about being closer to the actual load is that they reached a tipping point where they knew that they could no longer do the air cooling anymore. And whether that was around 20 or 25 or 30 kW per rack or rack equivalent somewhere around there, they realized that that was that tipping point and went ahead and invested to figure out what does it mean to do this cold play infrastructure? Or do we want to even look at immersion like some of the other hyperscalers did? Now, Meta stuck with what they knew, and they went with a cold plate, liquid-cooled cold plate, in order to support all of these GPUs for their AI and Metaverse infrastructure. And doing that along with the InfiniBand, which also uses liquid-to-liquid -liquid, uh, cooling distribution, they were looking to transition as much as they possibly could over to liquid. Now, the engineers at Meta, of course, they, they probably know, as most people do, that liquid is likely to be way more, way more energy efficient as far as the cooling solution for the data center, the components, etc. So they're trying to get as close as they can to the actual heat sources. And that means doing cold plate allows them to put the liquid through a cold plate distribution, put the cold plate on the chip or whatever components they need to. And then with the rest of it, because not everything is going to be able to be efficiently um, cooled with that liquid and cold plate technology. In other words, you can start to do that for all of your major components, but there's the minor components that they've decided to have the solution with what they call air-assisted liquid cooling. Now, the air-assisted liquid cooling that operates a little bit differently, I mean, it uses a closed-loop cooling system with a rear-door heat exchanger, but the, the intent is that you have existing room-level cooling that passes through the rear door, and you're pulling the heat out that way. So you have all these cold plates and a heat exchanger just as you might normally. Um, and with the cold plate that you're looking at on the server itself, you're looking to get that, of course, as close as you possibly can. And that is hopefully extracting as much of it as it can with that liquid. And then going ahead with the air assisted, that does the remainder. Now, the amount that each does, whether it's 20% for the liquid cooling or 80% for the liquid cooling, followed by 20 to 80 for the air assisted, we don't know what those balance factors are. So we're unsure. Meta has not released that. So it's really unclear, but they're probably aiming for above 50, 60, 70, 80% is probably what they're aiming for on the liquid side, followed by the rest of the air assisted is going to be doing the remainder of the cooling. Now, whenever you're doing each one of these, you're likely designing one to be doing as much as possible, like the liquid side. And then the air assisted is probably over-designed to compensate just in case the liquid can't capture as much as you think it can. So you might have the liquid, say, trying to capture 80%, and you might design it for that amount of load in order to be captured. But then the air assisted liquid cooled, instead of just doing the remainder of 20%, 
uh, you would design that to say do 30% or even more in order to compensate, say if the liquid cooled or that liquid might only get around you know, 70% instead of the 80% that you originally designed for. Now, liquid cooling at the cold plate is probably going to get what you're achieving or what your goals are, but sometimes there is a delta T or there's a other loss that you're not necessarily compensating for. That's why we're over-designing or a designer might over-compensate on the air-assisted liquid-cooled design. Now, you can get a nice preview of all of that, and they keep making improvements at the metainfrahardware.com. That's the website that you can go ahead and view a lot of that, and they've been making some updates and, and such, but it hasn't changed, I think, over the last couple of years. They've been sort of previewing everything on how that rack operates. Now, their open compute rack that they revealed was um, the version 3, and that would operate in the existing structures, the existing data centers that Facebook was already doing or Meta was already doing. So they had rolled all of this out in order to not only be innovative and work with the, the liquid cooling, but would work with their existing data centers. So they're very concerned about what would work and what would be configurable for that. With this new data center design, we might see something completely different as far as that open rack version. It might not be V3, maybe it's the V4 or something entirely new. And the intent is probably the same with that liquid cooling, do as much as possible there, and they might have the air assisted. Now, I think Meta, they've looked at the immersion and some other technologies that the hyperscalers have looked at, but I don't think that they're committed to playing with that any further. Uh, they, it looks like they're going to be developing their data centers around this, mostly liquid cooled with that air assist going forward. And that might mean that Meta is using the A100, the H100 NVIDIA's, the, the Grand Teton platform that they've been looking at and arranging around that and figuring out how they can get the bandwidth, the compute, everything to go along with that and align it, and then build that out into the modular fashion, whether it's five megawatts, 10 megawatts, whatever that is, and then go ahead and build out these data centers accordingly in that modular fashion. Now, like a lot of what Meta does is they have an open source design for things. So the, the Grand Teton is a hardware design and that's going to be open source and they're looking to provide these open source uh, uses so that they can go ahead and deploy in other data centers as well. This is also the case for say like an open compute compliant data center or resource. They want to go ahead and make sure that they can go ahead and move in with that open compute compliant data center and that they have the hardware or they can facilitate the hardware I should say with the this uh, facility infrastructure that they have. So because of that, the Open Compute project, they have a sub-project that's just on cold plate infrastructure. And they've been doing this as well as liquid cooling for years now. Again, the, a lot of what they've been pivoting to on the AI was originally targeted towards the metaverse, but it, it can easily be pivoted straight to the AI needs that, uh, that Meta is looking to deploy. Now this Grand Teton device by Meta, it's an AI platform is what it should be known as. And it's being developed to go ahead and support this InfiniBand structure. And then the Grand Teton itself is just a platform that uses NVIDIA H100 Tensor Core GPUs. 
and you couple them together with the InfiniBand and suddenly you're putting together AI models that can go ahead and run and be applied to a lot of growing use cases. Now using InfiniBand of course has its own limitations but that's one of the limitations that they're cutting off in their data centers and their applications. So you can tell by the size, well, they're stretching the InfiniBand probably to the maximum, and then they're modularizing everything else within that particular structure so that the storage, the compute, everything matches up with that InfiniBand structure. Now the Grand Teton, uh, it's just a name, right? It's a 13,000 foot mountain in one of Wyoming's national parks. And it, I think it was just selected because of the team that might be working around that or that they had something that wanted to be named around that for some reason. So just like uh, sometimes the naming conventions are sort of just um, obscure or seem to be arbitrary, this seems to be one of those cases. Not necessarily because it's the greatest mountain, but because it is one of the greatest mountains in a national park that's well recognized. Now the GPU loads and the amount of power that they're going to consume can be reviewed on like their, their particular website, say NVIDIA, if you're looking at their A100 or H100 Tensor Core GPU, you can look at that for the scalability, the serviceability, for the workloads that they're providing. And they might have like a certain descriptor such as a maximum thermal design power. Uh, and they might list that as like a certain uh, amount of watts, say 350, but realize that we're starting to get in these models where in the future we're going to be not at 350, it's going to be 5, 6, and that's what's mentioned previously is we're really starting to get up there on the amount of watts that we're going to be looking at per GPU, per core, and everything is just going to scale and escalate from there. Now, with the new design of their data center looking like it's around that version 3 that's totally optimized, especially for this air-assisted liquid cooling, it looks like that liquid cooling can then, with that reservoir and pumping unit uh, that's more localized, it can start to perform better and more efficiently. And that redesign is probably based on that total version 3 of the open compute rack. So we're likely to see more of that design going forward, even though we haven't really seen everything that's about it that's going to be going in Indiana today. Like a lot of other systems, I'll be looking out for some of the performance data and the efficiencies they might have derived in comparison with, say, version 2, which, you know, they've had out for years, these two comparing units and how they're operating. And just to see how that 48 volt versus the 12 volt or the this new air assisted liquid cooling might be able to perform against some of the existing facilities like that H type design versus this new facility type design that we're likely to see. So it should be very interesting going forward this year to see more what they're looking to develop and what they can publish on the numbers. Thank you again for tuning in and checking out the Green Data Center podcast. Feel free again to send us any messages at thegreendatacenterguide.com. If this podcast was useful for you in any way, feel free to give a like and a subscribe on whatever podcast platform you might be using. are syndicated across most of them and of course any likes and subscribes really help us out give us a lot of information on what we should be doing if you have a question we'd love to have it 
so that we know that we're on the right track and are going in the right direction, not just for you, but also for our own education. Thank you.